0: Welcome to a show we're calling The World This Year. The World This Year, in partnership with The Daily Beast, Daily Beast foreign editor Nico Hines has crossed the channel to grace us with his presence. How are you, sir?
1: Very well, thank you.
0: Thank you. Nice to see you. Nice to see, uh, as well, uh, independent journalist Aisha Ghul How are things? Good. Good? Good. Very good. All right, very good. <laughs> Vivian Walt, Paris Correspondent for Time Magazine. How's your Christmas period? It's
2: holidays. What's to complain about?
0: What's to complain about? Well, I'm sure that uh, a political consultant and commentator, Philippe moroche will find something to complain about.
2: Yes,
3: we are. I'm French. So being French, I'm always, I've always got something to complain about. <laughs> I wouldn't be truthful to my own country if I wouldn't. All right.
0: Throughout the year, you can listen, like, and subscribe to The World This Week on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and other fine streaming services
1: the decision to carry out a special military operation?:
0: It was the year that war returned to Europe, after the 2014 annexation of Crimea and Moscow's proxy war in the donbass, Vladimir Putin justifying his invasion of Ukraine and appealing to its citizens
3: Dear
1: Dear comrades, your fathers, grandfathers, and great-grandfathers did not fight defending our motherland for today's neo-Nazis to seize power in Ukraine.
0: February the 24th. Vivian, what what was your reaction when you saw that speech?
2: I think everybody was a little stunned, although they ought not to have been. Um, Certainly, there were enough intelligence services, including the U.S., that was warning for months that Putin was going to invade. But even Ukraine was downplaying it. And what's so extraordinary is, no matter where we were at the moment when the invasion happened, I don't think any of us really took into account how enormous this would be for the whole world and not just for Ukraine.
0: Yeah, a a moment uh, that uh, uh, caught the whole world off guard. Uh, Putin's Ukrainian counterpart, though... Did not blink. Uh, Volodymyr Zelensky uh, taking to Twitter to Facebook, uh, saying, uh, "We're all here." And uh, on the night of February twenty fourth, there he is with his inner cabinet. And when the United States allegedly offered to airlift him out of the capital, the Ukrainian embassy in London uh, took to Twitter, uh, quoting him as saying, uh, "I need ammunition, not." A ride uh, that too was an early surprise of this war. I should assert.
4: Yes, I, look, I was in Turkey a few days after the uh, the invasion of Ukraine, and even Turkey that today shows itself as a big negotiator for peace and, and uh, did not see at 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 what point this could be a key moment for the country to back to come back on the international scene. But the thing is, is in a way, I agree. We were surprised, but not really, because Putin, in those two plus decades of reign, has always done what he has said he will do. Yeah, but and hindsight it's been... is
0: twenty twenty. We're all we're yeah. Always... But
4: remember Crimea, two thousand fourteen. I mean, that was in the coming. He kept also saying to the U.S. not only intellig- you know, U.S. intelligence, but saying. Beware, I'm not very happy about NATO being that close to my border. So it was a surprise. It was a shock. It was a shock for him afterwards, too, because he never thought that it would last this long. But in a way, it was something in the coming.
0: Yeah, you, As you were saying, Ukraine uh, outgunned, outnumbered. Quickly, though, Russia's plan went off script. Uh, like on March the 10th, uh, the world watched agape as a column of Russian tanks uh, bearing down on Kiev uh, got stopped dead in its tracks in the northeastern uh, suburb of Bravari, the northeastern suburb of the capital. Uh, the prediction um, you heard at the, the start in this very studio uh, at the start of the war proving correct. First, Russia would win. Then Russia would lose. Uh, uh, Nico Hines, uh, those images of those tanks getting stopped, everybody was shocked at that as well.
1: Honestly, seeing all these clips that we're, we're looking at, it reminds you just what an inc- incredibly historic year we're living through here. My heart actually jumped seeing Putin make that speech. I remember at the time that it cut to the core as you, as you realized what was actually going to happen. And now the extraordinary events of the last seven months. I think, you know, when that war began, we thought it might be over in three, four, five days mm. Uh, and to see what's happened now is just extraordinary. Putin has bitten off much more than he can chew. Chevrolet.
3: Yeah, what we see is a personalized war. I mean, the, the, the first images of the war that we have is Putin declaring that he's in a state of war against uh, Ukraine, and the first picture of Ukraine that we got is the leader of Ukraine stating that he wouldn't flee the country as expected. So it's like it was a personalized war from the beginning, and each leader is playing a very different uh, game. And it's fascinating to see that we first expected that Putin being Putin with all the display of strength and power would win easily, and that the little, little Ukrainian guy on his Facebook page would lose. And it's actually a uh, much more complicated situation.
0: Yeah, uh, Zelensky uh, holding that, uh, his phone to, to make Yeah, it's that. a
3: symbol. That's why he got popular too. I mean, he's always wearing the same, you know, uh, battle shirt. He's always uh, playing the uh, Twitter... Facebook card, so he's very close to the people, whereas uh, Putin is playing, displaying a lot of strength, power, is is very uh, you know uh, uh, far from the people, far from us. So it's like two different. It's a, like really a textbook thing of uh, communication in, in a time of war. I mean, there will, will be books written about that. Yeah, sure.
0: d- of course there's also books going to be written uh, about what happened on the battlefield uh, from that standoff at Snake Island at the very beginning uh, to the siege of the Azovstal uh, steel factory in Mariupol, which went on for weeks and weeks and weeks, Vivian Waltz.
2: Yeah, and I don't think we have really seen anything quite of the scale. Perhaps Grozny is one um, comparison we can make, but really this is kind of like Dresden or you know uh, Stalingrad, if you like. I mean, this is but, major. But it could have been worse. Warfare.
0: They they could in terms of it could have been worse in terms of people were expecting Ukraine to be flattened by carpet bombing. Absolutely. it didn't happen and quite, I quite too, the way it, 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 that it was predicted. And I
2: think as as near as we are sitting in Europe. Um, to Ukraine. I don't think that we quite get some essential things about Ukraine. And I remember interviewing people in Ukraine days before the war, and they said, Putin cannot invade. We've done the kind of calculations. We are hundreds of thousands of people under arms, and we're all prepared to drop our jobs and head to the front immediately. And I was kind of skeptical, and I think everybody was skeptical from this distance. But the nearer you were to it, I think the clearer it became that actually Ukraine was in it, um, and it was a fight for survival, and they were prepared to dig in. Of course, it would have been very different under a different Ukrainian leader, I think. Um, you know, you had a leader who could really rally the West, Um he just had this brilliant sense of communication, as Philippe says, and who um, was really prepared to just put it all on the line.
0: And we've seen the resolve of the Ukrainians, as spelled out by Vivian there. France 24's Catherine Norris Trent spoke with some of the few residents who, despite the shelling, had stayed in the Kharkiv neighborhood of uh, Saltivka. Uh, that was uh, uh, in, in the spring. And then in November, uh, when our crew returned... Uh, 75-year-old Ludmila was still in that apartment block and resolute after moving downstairs to the bomb shelter.
2: Шо у зимою було 17 градусів і я вижила. Так у мене ліжка тоді не було, а щас я ліжко зробила, таке гарне. Ходімте, я вам покажу. А це теж банки у мене. Ось бачите.
4: I'm
0: not afraid of anything now, that 75 year old woman is saying.
4: Yes, and that shows really the. Uh, you, we were talking about what's the identity of the Ukrainians, and in a way, and it shows, I think, what Putin is showing is how much he's been stuck in the past and he's thinking i think of going of invading ukraine was like we are brothers we are of the same country i'm actually not coming to invade you i'm coming to liberate you uh, and,
0: and you think he really believed it
4: I, I think that look i think that any leader who stays in power for more than 8, 10, 12 years, and he's been, what, 20-plus years, loses completely the being in touch with reality. So I think that he really believed what he said. But the Ukrainians of today are not the Ukrainians of the Soviet era or not even the Ukrainians of, what, 10 years ago, Mm. in the sense of not only of resilience, but they were close to Europe, to the European I don't like that word, but values of... of, of, They were turning west rather than towards Russia. And Putin saw that and wanted to stop it. And we saw it with the the few lines of this woman who's 75 saying, hey, I leave my house, I leave my town. What do I have left? I'll rather die.
0: Mm. When the war broke out in Ukraine, Vladimir Putin's interlocutor of choice, Angela Merkel, was recently retired. That left Francis Emmanuel Macron, the one sitting at that long table... Uh, officially, for social distancing reasons, this was in the in the days uh, leading up uh, to the uh, to the invasion, as the president tried to take a stab at preventing war. But Putin's uh, brutal uh, invasion made any lingering ambivalence impossible. In June, Macron took the night train to Kiev with Merkel's successor Olaf Scholz and the outgoing Italian Prime Minister Mario Draghi. That had followed the French president's April re-election, one where he reminded voters that his opponent in the runoff, the far-right Marine Le Pen, still owed the Russians money for the campaign loan on her previous bid for president in
2: 2017.
1: This is bad news for our country, because you depend on the Russian regime and you depend on Putin. You don't talk to other leaders, you talk to your banker when you talk about Russia. That's the problem, Mrs Le Pen and that's one of the the moments in that
0: only debate that happened uh that where Macron scored the most points people thought when the war began oh yeah but the the elections in april by that time people won't be concerned about foreign policy anymore
3: He's playing. He's playing on on a chord which is uh, very, very uh, delicate to for the far right in France because the far right in France has been influ- influenced heavily by the Russian government for years. They poured a lot of money, but also a lot of you know TV exposure and Russia Today and media exposure and Sputnik. Whoever wanted to be on air could be on air. It was quite easy to be on Russia Today because they wanted to expand their influence. So the far right is, is divided between uh, one side who is against Russia and really truly, truly patriotic. They want uh, to endorse the French side. uh, No discussion about that. But there is a more ambiguous side inside the far right with pro-Russian, actually, also anti- vaccination uh, and also pro, uh, could we say, pro-fake news. And they would be the Trumpists. So we have a Trumpist side who is also pro-Russian anti-vax. And that's on this that he plays, is he, telling to my pen your side, it's divided in Russia, admit it. And you, you had some money because you also had some influence from Russia, poor than you.
0: Yeah, it's been a bad war for the likes of Nigel Farage, Donald Trump.
1: Yeah, certainly has. You're on the losing side and you're ultimately probably going to be proven to be on the weaker side, which is what these people don't like. You know, if you, if you want to be a strong man the last thing you want to do is getting beaten by a tiny, puny little country that's next door to you. And, you know, looking at that classic picture of Macron and Putin, two tiny little men on a big table, um, it, it kind of it brings to light how the reality, when these guys think that they're on these huge adventures, the reality can sometimes not be quite as as grand as they dreamed.
0: Uh, when uh, the, uh, uh, the, the war for Vladimir Putin also uh, uh, bringing... Uh, Two new countries uh, into NATO, or so we hope. Uh, I should go because Finland and Sweden are not quite there yet. Uh, there are objections from Turkey's president, but it's all part of a kind of a bargaining process.
4: Well, Erdogan is a is a master. is one of is the third little man, as as you would say who is given too much power, and so whatever he has in his hands, he is trying to hold on to it. And so, yes, he says, look, if you really want, you know, want me to say yes to the fact that these two countries will be a part of it, give me back the... Kurdish terrorists. Well, the word "terrorist" in Turkey these years have been overused for almost everything. Um, so, if you're in in intellectual, not in the line of of the president, you're probably a terrorist. So, yes, he's using whatever he can, and for now, it's it's NATO uh, in order to to play the international scene, and he needs that.
0: But it's worked to a degree. After all, he did broker uh, with the United Nations that deal to export. Uh, grain and fertilizer to the developing world.
4: Yes, but do, but also do remember that in 2015 it did work the refugee card that he had in his hands that that Angela Merkel really wanted to pass, and it, and today we are actually coming back to to it slowly because Turkey is not and Turkey through Bulgaria etc. It's not using and Serbia is not using really the uh, the. Is not really living up to the work that it has done. So, you know, always take what Erdogan says and does with a grain of salt. Right. Uh, uh, that was too philosophical. <laughs>
0: but, <you know. laughs> uh, Vivian Walt, uh, the negotiations, the brokering that's been attempted, a lot of it's been done, in fact, by the United Nations, most notably because in the early days of the war, Russia seizing Uh, Europe's largest nuclear power plant, Zaporizhia, and the head of the UN's nuclear watchdog, uh, able to broker a deal where at least there are monitors there.
2: You know, this is kind of an extraordinary thing. I I keep going back to what Nico said at the start of the show, which is we are living through an astonishingly historic year. There is such a kind of reordering of the world that is unfolding um, with the you know, flashpoint being Ukraine, but really this is about a massive global shift that that is happening. And you have the UN on which Russia, of course, is one of the five permanent members of the Security Council, and yet it remains an essential body, um, which is kind of extraordinary. Decades after its founding, um, full of holes, totally flawed, and yet... It is in the perhaps the only body that could go in and negotiate something like some kind of deal around Zaporrica, which is essential obviously for this region and the world
0: yeah. um, and we 'll see we 'll see obviously in two thousand twenty three uh, how uh, uh, attempts to uh, to uh, uh, tone it down or to broker some kind of a, a, a deal will work uh, there 's also Another mystery when uh, we're trying to pierce what's going on in Moscow, uh, and that is why so many Russian businessmen have met untimely deaths in 2022. There's even a Wikipedia page; it counts 20 so far. The latest, as reported by the Daily Beast, is 50-year-old Dmitry Zelenov, who fell over a banister and hit his head in a friend's villa in, in on the French Riviera in Antibes. Nico Hines, these oligarchs. Won't, what, the, we saw them paraded out at the beginning uh, of the war for a speech by Vladimir Putin. What, what's their standing
1: today? Well, hopefully they're not standing too close to the edge, I think, is the most important thing. <laughs> you know, it, it's such an important time for Putin in terms of his isolation. I think what we're seeing increasingly is... There aren't as many people who want to stand up for him anymore. He's had to, he's cancelled his recent big press conference. Mm. He's doing uh, increasingly hard to believe uh, press appearances. It used to be that they could you know roll out the old classic photo shoot and the domestic media would get on board. And those old tricks are not working anymore. And it, it, more than ever before, he needs a close, tight knit group of people around him to protect him because I think he fears that he might be the next person that goes over the banister. And he's trying really, really hard to keep that group tight, to keep them under control, and to make sure that they're too scared to step out of line. Are
0: we making too much of
1: these, uh, uh, of these mystery de- mysterious deaths? I'm sure some of them are purely coincidental and misadventure. <laughs> Absolutely. No, you know, I, th- I don't think everyone is, is a murder. But I do think it's not coincidence um, and that Putin is under a huge amount of pressure and is more desperate than he's ever been.
0: Let's turn the clock back again to February the 24th, because just before that, there was something of an Olympic truce that preceded the invasion. Vladimir Putin, who held his fire until after the Beijing Olympics, where he attended the opening ceremonies, held talks with China's president. Uh, But when it came time for Xi Jinping to make his first trip abroad since the outbreak of covid in 2020, his first stop instead Oil and gas-rich uh, gas Kazakhstan, a former Soviet republic that, like Ukraine, boasts a large Russian ethnic minority, and which has uh, proven wary of uh, of, of his uh, of, uh, of Putin's Ukraine campaign. Philippe Chevrolet.
3: Uh, yes, what well, we see is that Putin is isolated also on the diplomatic scene. We expected to him to have allies in China and india and Modi the uh, indias india 's p m has been uh, quite clear about it that he wouldn 't support uh, the war he wants he wants it to end He, he stated that publicly, which is kind of uh, <coughs> huge. And uh, China is very ambiguous, but obviously doesn't want to go uh, to fall. <laughs> I mean, that's the first time we cancel a whole country. It seems that the cancellation policy works for countries too. So that's unprecedented. We cut everything from Russia. The access to everything, credit, the internet, social media, uh, goods, that's unprecedented. And this isolation policy that has been conducted with the help of the UN, it's, it's apparently working, which is good. Within what?
2: Look, I mean, the US... I'm optimistic, right? Yeah, I, That's I think not so very a optimistic. <laughs> i optimistic. I think we have to remember that millions of Russians still support this war. Many, many, many millions. And um, they watch Russian TV all day long and completely by the line that this is, um, you know, a just military operation. Um, but in terms of, you know, the sanctions, I mean, one has to remember still that the US is still for the meantime the world's biggest economy and that the right, the sanctions powered by the US are massively impactful
1: mm. particularly
2: cutting off Russian Russia's access to international financial transactions etc that is really where it hurts and so if you're a, you know a Chinese business person or an Indian you know trader of some commodity or other You really can't afford to be, um, you know, swept up in kind of indirect sanctions at a time like this.
0: Yeah, and like uh, Vladimir Putin, uh, Xi Jinping was a man who took a big gamble in 2022. Yeah, the Chinese president seeing off supporters of predecessor Hu Jintao, who he publicly humiliated uh, at a Communist Party Congress that lifted term limits for Xi. But his biggest challenge... Uh, still comes from that invisible coronavirus. (laughs) Images of mask-free fans enjoying the World Cup in Qatar contributing to last month, uh, uh, rare images of protests against the government. Uh, Cries of down with the party, down with Xi and cities like Shanghai. There were arrests, but calls seem to have been a uh, heated God. since and those those lockdown rules uh have been eased um is a bigger problem for she the fact that he's crossed this threshold by now lifting term limits mm. or this invisible coronavirus.
4: 2022 is full of images like this, and I love it, of protests. You were talking about the fact that in Russia there were not protests against war. Well, they can't even say war, but the operation. But hey, kudos to the courage of so many people who in Russia at the beginning of the operation did go out in, in order, you know, to show papers that there was, you know, that that, that protested. Same thing in China. Here is, an, I'm thinking of Iran too, but we'll come back to it. China, another country where where there is not really, um, where the, the, the grand leader is actually supported and where silence reigns. Here is again, these images of protests. It shows how in a way, what you were saying about optimism—that maybe we are going towards a new year, a two thousand twenty-three, where the silenced can no longer be really silenced. Sorry for the repetition, um, and that protests like this will continue if leaders like Xi Jinping uh, continue to just hold on to power even more and more.
0: And so now we have this easing a, a, of lockdown in China that's happened. And it seems as though the protests did play a part.
1: Yeah, it's an extraordinary, um, if you look at the timeline of it, she has been preparing for this five-yearly Congress for, well, five years since he, he last had it. Um, and he's been putting in place plans that he could make sure it's a smooth transition so that everyone can sign off and he's the president for life or in charge for as long as he wants to be. And yet he didn't seem to foresee this huge, looming problem. He didn't have the excuse that the rest of the world leaders had, where nobody knew what this disease was, nobody knew how to combat it. Everyone knows exactly how to stop COVID now. And the answer is to vaccinate everybody, to get the best vaccines available, and to deploy them, especially into the elderly. And he's had a two-year period where he's been plotting, planning his legacy, coming up with harebrained schemes to get himself into the history books, and failed to do the most obvious thing in the world. And there is this common thread. People might say the, the war in Ukraine. Uh, I should go talked about
0: Iran, which we'll talk about more in next week's show, give it its fair due. In, in Philippe Moreau-Chevrolet, when it comes to China, uh, how COVID perhaps changed politics?
3: Uh, it changed politics because they, they went into a isolation mode for for several months, even years, and they have been locked. The, the population, the, its population, has been locked down. The economic exchanges have been lowered, and uh, um, I must, they must have reconsidered what their position could be uh, in that situation. And it must have been da- dangerous for them, even for Xi Jinping, to uh, to stay focused on the uh, do- on the international policies since he has too m- many domestic issues. Uh, we, I think, we don't understand what it means. I mean to be locked down for months at a time without the possibility to go to the supermarket uh, with people, police, police coming to your place, locking uh, the buildings, locking up the buildings, uh, the food would be sent to you. And uh, it was really harsh. And uh, the problem that we face now is that this will become the laboratory for the replication of the virus. There will be millions of deaths or severely injured people. And uh, what we will see is maybe a world uh, shortage of uh, medication in certain departments because, let's face it, that's the biggest population in the world. They will need medication and uh, the market is limited. And if you focus on France, uh, let me say, let me just add that in France uh, buys the products, the medication at a very low price. Because they, we have a state subsidized uh, sanitary system, so he wants to buy cheap, and uh, countries like ours will buy cheap on the market. They will be served last, so it will have huge repercussions.
0: Yeah, it's a reminder as well that um, uh, for all this talk that uh, we're going to shorten supply chains, and uh, d- we've been having this discussion for three years now. How uh, we're over dependent. China is still the world's factory.
2: It is. I mean, in some ways, I feel like Nico and I are the pessimists here and uh, <laughs> and we're facing the two optimists. But, um, you know, I do feel like obviously China's economy is markedly weaker because of the COVID lockdowns. And of course, it's had a global depressive impact. But um, it is and will soon be perhaps the world's biggest economy overtaking the U.S. at some point. And it is still a massive center of manufacturing. But even that has changed. I mean, many, many, many companies have begun to relocate under the COVID lockdown. And I think, honestly, more than, you know, the protests, this really was the kind of alarm bell for Xi, who is an authoritarian leader. He can crack down and protest any moment he feels like it. Um, but uh, I think the fact that you had major companies pulling out of China, you had people who didn't want to locate their foreign business people there, um, you had a whole ripple effect. That's going to be lasting. That will be lasting. Mm. That will be lasting.
4: I I would have never thought I would be optimistic for Xi Jinping, but on his behalf, I'd like to say that yes, in a way uh, that... that there are things that are restraining for him, but also don't forget. Recently, he was in Central Asia. I, I looked it up. In two thousand thirteen, a few months after he came to power, he actually went to Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, all these Central Asian countries. So he knows. I mean, these autocrats, dictators, are animal, you know, political animals, but they're also survivors. So when they see someone like Xi Jinping, when he sees that the West is turning its back. Uh, to it. He's turning towards Central Asia, Russia, Iran, Mm -hmm. and uh, let's also not forget that I think China will remain on the map in terms of of, of debates and and economics because uh, the U.S. has an eye on it. The number one enemy of the U.S. in 2013, but just like it was in 2020 and in the Trump years, it was China, and we are coming back to it. So whoever you put your energy on grows in power. So China is not history yet. Sorry, uh, Xi Jinping is not history yet.
0: Right. Well, to you, she was your queen. To us, she was the queen, were the words of France's president as uh, uh, tributes to the world's longest serving head of state uh, reflected a feeling that went well beyond the UK or the Commonwealth. In 2020 uh, to Queen Elizabeth passing away her platinum jubilee earlier in the year uh, marking 70 years on the throne already felt uh, Nico Hines l- like a farewell. It was quite an amazing moment when you think back to that jubilee because it's as if you had Britain had a chance to say goodbye to her
1: already. And there was a big kind of debate at the time or people keeping their fingers crossed that she actually would survive until the jubilee. So I think that was kind of baked into the whole thing. That was well known. People were waiting to give that final farewell um, to her while she was still alive. And I think it's all worked out very calmly. Um, and I think just as she would have liked, you know, everything went went according to plan. I think what's become really obvious is just how phenomenally important she was and how brilliant she was at the job. You know, she took over in 1952. So more than a figurehead. Absolutely. Britain doesn't have a written constitution, Technically, she can dissolve the parliament and the monarch can dissolve the parliament. It's not clear what the House of Lords has power to stop the House of Commons from doing. It's all such a big jumble. And the only way it's worked is because you've had this phenomenal figure who is unimpeachably popular in Britain. Everybody likes the Queen. It doesn't matter even if you hate the monarchy and think it should be brought down, you still like the queen. Um, And so she has managed to keep all these plates spinning in this kind of bizarre modern world. Um, You know, it's a hangover, let's face it, it's a hangover from centuries bygone. um, And yet it's still there. But now that we've got this new guy in charge, he just doesn't have the skill, and already it's starting to unravel. Doesn't
0: have the skill. Yeah, the, the th- Queen Elizabeth, uh, who was thrust into the job, her, the abdication of her uncle, the premature death of her father, suddenly put Elizabeth in the spotlight. Uh, for Prince, uh, for now King Charles, the wait was so long. Uh, that times have, as Nico says, certainly changed. Subjects uh, who request uh, a- and obtain a not so regal uh, kiss on the cheek are a novelty. Uh, but even uh, if Charles is a very familiar face, hot mics will still enable the world to get reacquainted with him. i Oh, God, I don't scared uh, Nico Heinz, it's early days for Charles. Uh, this kind of incidents, uh, do they matter? Uh,
3: yes, that's the first impression that counts. And uh, the, the Queen wouldn't even have thought of expressing an emotion such as this one, complaining about a pen. And, uh, you know, you, you, you need to have a neutral face. You need to have a stiff upper lip. And obviously he's not built of that. Wood. So it
0: sounds like you're saying that the monarchy is in danger?
3: No, the monarchy is not in danger. will Eventually, will die and pass on to the uh, next one. Maybe the next one will be better. That's the beauty of monarchy. Yeah. Okay. Uh,
0: well, uh, the monarchy may not be in danger, but uh, there are problems with the constitutional democracy. Winston Churchill was prime minister uh, when Elizabeth's reign began. She died on Liz Truss's second day on the job. The Conservative had hoped to follow in Margaret Thatcher's footsteps with tax cuts that instead spooked the markets and sent the pound tumbling. And when she tried to save her job by sacking her finance minister, Kwasi Kwarteng, well, the writing was already on the wall.
1: And her supposed best friend, the former Chancellor, he's gone as well. They're all gone. So why is she still here?
2: speaker i am a fighter and not a quitter
0: and the rest is as they say history yes.
2: <laughs> she might have been a fighter but she had no choice in the end <laughs> she was effectively pushed out and i think luckily for the country but um you know I, I think it was a moment in which you saw the value of the monarchy that there was a kind of sense that not the wheels weren't completely going to come off this country because there still was this other institution that was kind of holding things sort of steady. Um, The question I have is, you know, whether or not the Conservative Party can last, can continue their incredible long run um, as government after... There might be a snap election is what you're saying. I leave that to Nico probably to answer that, but, um, but I would say um, it seems unlikely. And I think that, uh, I mean, unlikely that they could continue for many years more. And I think all through Liz Truss's debacle of um, tenure, you had the opposition leader, Keir Starmer looking wonderful, looking like the statesman um, that the country needed. Um, And, uh, at least from the rest of the world's vantage point, that's what it looked like.
0: So you have this this uh, regal handover on the one hand at Buckingham Palace, and this meltdown in the House of Commons.
4: Well, I think the Queen said, "Look, I've reigned for seven decades. I've seen, uh, you know, the UK in the EU, and no longer. I do not wish to see least trust, uh, you know, in <laughs> on government for on the for the third day, and that was at ninety six. Uh, goodbye. But uh, joking aside." Is she has been an incredible I mean, her. Li- she had a grand life I mean, she saw decolonization of the countries um, she saw, well, scandals too um, in a way I'm thinking of Diana but also of Meghan and Harry um, she had several dogs I mean, <laughs> I think she had a grand life and that's how she, she. speaking of the cliche of witnessing history she was a grand damn witness of history
0: uh, and now a new king and a new prime minister.
1: <laughs> yeah, it all came around so, so quickly. I, I think one thing that Liz Truss seems to have got away with is any blame for the monarch's demise. I, th- <laughs> I do think if she was on the verge of death and she was forced to get out of bed, go and perform all these official duties, take the photos, shake hands, you know, she hadn't basically been avo- she'd been avoiding doing these kind of on-camera duties for months and months because of her ill health. So, I do think there are some questions to be asked about whether it was wise that she was got out of bed. That's not Liz Truss's fault, though. Well, perhaps (laughs) it was not her fault, but I think um, somebody might have made a more sensible decision and and allowed her to um, do that one over Zoom. Um, Rishi Sunak has now taken over, and it's quite funny because his very obvious policy is don't be on TV, don't say anything, don't be seen. I'm not sure it's a very good idea because he would have been, by comparison with Liz Truss, everyone would have gone, oh, hey, this guy looks like he knows what he's doing. Um, I understand that he realises the Conservative Party aren't very popular at the moment, so perhaps he should keep his head down. But I think he's missed his opportunity to use that kind of honeymoon period Mm. to imprint an image of himself as a strong, stable leader.
0: It was the year we said goodbye to to a queen, and uh, it concluded with another coronation, that of a king of the world. Uh, seven-time Ballon d'Or no. winner Lionel mm-hmm. Messi leading Argentina to its third World Cup title, the first since the passing of the legendary Diego Maradona, the Albiceleste beating Les Bleus in a thrilling final that went all the way to a penalty uh, shootout and also lifted the spirits of a nation otherwise uh, in the throes of deep political an economic turmoil when you look at the state of today's Argentina Philippe Mirochevrolet kind of had the feeling they needed this more than we did
3: uh, yes, sure. That's a, you, you can always tell that to yourself. I mean, it's, it's a comforting thought, right? I'm trying. Uh, yeah, you should. Once, when I was a publisher, I published a book once, which which title was Dolor Pais. Uh, it's difficult to translate in English, but it will be, uh, I don't know, uh, It's the, this feeling that uh, there would be a, a pain that would be shared by all Argentinians, and that it would be a national pain, if you want. And that's been on the... Argentina's shoulders for years. I mean, ever since the economic structure restructurations of the 80s, 90s, the country has been going from a uh, uh, bankruptcy to bankruptcy. I mean, it's always the same. Uh, scheme repeating and uh, they needed that because also uh, South America is really the land of football even more than Europe and even more than the US obviously and uh, it's, uh, it's a symbol of you know this fight between France and Argentina it was really also symbolic of the time we are in I mean of this divide between the rich and the poor I mean on the social level it was interesting. Uh, also, and it's uh, it's fair that Argentina did win because, it, in a way, it's a symbol we ne- all needed.
0: It's all it's only a game, or is it? Because the way Philippe is describing it, uh, the, the these national football teams are the the embodiment of a nation that bring together an otherwise divided people.
4: Well. I think, first of all I need to say that I think Dolor Pais would have been something like don't cry for me Argentina <laughs> uh, yeah
3: maybe yeah. it was written by a second analyst uh, as his specialist and
4: performed wonderfully by Madonna but um, yeah. uh, to come back to, to this game look Macron made this game political if there's one guy who has made it I mean I must say my president I mean my country's president Erdogan was actually one of those guys who went to Qatar but his reason was not for the game it was was not in order to boost his ego. It was in order to sign, to have the sign checks by Qatar because Turkey really needs it. The omnipresence of French President Macron <laughs> and the absence of the Argentinian president because of the economic situation made it that this game is not just a game. It's not only about the people, it's about the countries. Vivian Walt? Yeah, absolutely. In
2: fact, I wrote a piece about this yesterday and found uh, the Argentine president's statement on Saturday saying, I will be watching the game from home, celebrating with my people like I always like to do. I mean, the contrast was so (sighs) stark, really, at the medal ceremony you had. You had Emmanuel Macron on the medal line and the, you know, president of the winning country was not there. In
0: fairness, that's happened at a lot of World Cups.
4: That's true. But Emmanuel Macron was everywhere. He was in the locker room. He was on the ground. He was Mm. on the, you know, at his seat. I mean, you saw almost Macron as as much as you've seen Mbappé.
2: But, you know, there's so many layers to this. Um, The one being, of course, the very close financial relationship between France and Qatar. And the fact that Qatar owns Paris Saint-Germain and that both Mm -hmm. Messi and and Kylian Mbappé play for Paris Saint-Germain effectively work for the Qatar government.
0: Yeah, Kylian Mbappé, who already at the age of 19 had tasted the joy of a World Cup uh, trophy back in 2018 in Russia for the 35-year-old Messi. It's a dream come true in his fifth and probably last stab at it. uh, Nico Hines. uh, We've spent. The better part of a month uh, berating corruption, uh, political interests at FIFA. In the end, they they got their dream
1: final. Mm. Absolutely. If, if they had just, yeah. I mean, it seems that Messi and Mbappe don't even want to play for PSG anymore. They don't want to play. They don't want to be owned by Qatar anymore. But it was very obvious that the deal was you stay owned by Qatar until this World Cup because we want to have our two big guys that we've spent hundreds of millions of pounds on. Um, psh- mm demonstrating our wealth and our power on the global stage and they couldn't have dreamt of a better final i mean to have both of them scoring multiple times it was it was a head-to-head mbappe versus messi game which never happens in world cups it's always you know you think it's going to be this superstar and then it turns out to be the left back who gets a header in the 91st minute um, and on this occasion it really was the dream scenario and yeah we look at rich countries in Europe. Poor countries in South America, and ultimately, they're all owned by the same regime in the Middle East.
4: May I just add something? Because we can't close this without talking about Morocco. I mean, <laughs> when you say about yes. the poor, and you know, the, the, I mean, Morocco was not only the shocked surprise, but we almost felt, uh, Philippe, you we were talking about, you know, the, this this attachment to the country. We all felt Moroccan. It, mm-hmm. it was incredible mm-hmm. to see this country come out of in a way nowhere represent the arab countries but also you know
0: also africa first african team in the semi-final
4: exactly so it was i must say this for me it was it was the most precious moment to see morocco come this far
1: all right but their star player hakimi owned by Qatar, plays for psg Mm -hmm. plays for barry it's true.
0: We'll be back next week, by the way, for a, a look ahead. Everybody's brought their crystal ball, and we'll be looking at the year that will be 2023. I want to thank Philippe Chevrolet, Aishagul Goulsert, Nico Hines, Vivian Walt. Thanks for being with us. More news on France24.com.